0: Hey everyone, it's Kevin O'Connor.
1: AKA Kevin O'Bomber, AKA Kevin
0: O'Concert. Kevon! Wait a minute, you're not Chris Vernon.
1: No, Kevin, sadly I'm not as cherubic or as raspy as Verno, but it is I, J Kyle Mann. And folks, basketball has been and continues to be so
0: very good. That's exactly why Kyle and I are hosting a brand new basketball show on a brand new podcast feed, The Ringers NBA Draft Show. We're gonna have you covered
1: every week as we go in-depth and deep dive in hopes of answering an ever-important question in the NBA. Who's got next? Whether it's an international phenom like Victor Winbanyama, or the G League Scoot Henderson, or stars from overtime elite like Amen Thompson, as well as a full-blown swarm of talented prospects from the promising 2023 NBA draft class.
0: For sure, Kyle. And we're also gonna get into players from the college ranks because this is a loaded class for us to discuss prospects rising and falling. And we're gonna revisit and redraft recent draft classes and get into how the league's evolution could help inform what's valuable in a prospect of the future.
1: This is a podcast for a fan of every team whether you're losing and have high draft
2: lottery odds or you're looking for sleepers later in the draft.
0: We're going to be covering everything in the months to come, so please make sure you follow and subscribe to the Ringer NBA Draft Show
1: and
2: hit us with those
1: 5-star ratings. It's the Ringer NBA Show presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets And listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 years and older, 18 and older in D.C., and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is supported by State Farm. Man, I remember when I first got into a car accident, it was pure frustration because I did not have State Farm. And now that I do have State Farm, it is an exclamation of pure joy. What's poppin'? Real ones, Logan Murdoch, Raja Bell. Raja, we have a special guest on the pod. Um, he's been around a long time. He is now at Sports Illustrated. We have Howard. I want to curse and say
2: Howard motherfucking Beck. So we got Howard motherfucking Beck in the house. How you doing, Howard? How
1: you doing? What's going on?
2: I mean, if you want to say it, then you just say it. You said it. So there I we go. It. Thank thank right. you for that amazing introduction, Logan. Appreciate you. Yeah, so eloquent, bro. You just, need, <laughs> you know, man. We're writers, Raja. We're writers. No. We know how to use the language in a very sophisticated, and efficient, and impactful way. That's what we do.
1: Clearly, fucking right, uh, Howard. <laughs> do you do you have any? Uh, you've been around the block a few times. Do you remember the first time you covered Raja? And if it, was he a good person or was he a dick to you? How was this? What was the were the vibes? How was he when you when you when right you out, covered him way back in?
2: Right out the gate. Look at that
0: coming out hot.
2: No, you know what I remember, actually? Because, obviously, I I covered the Lakers for the seven years during the Shaq-Kobe era, so I think the first time Raja was on my uh, radar was the first time he was on, I think, most of the NBA's radar was with that Sixer team. And so, hmm. Lakers-Sixers, Raja, you know, effing with Kobe, even in that series, setting the stage, little did we know, setting the stage for shit that would happen years and many teams (laughs) later, uh, a few (laughs) teams later for Raja, anyway. (laughs) many, many, many iterations of the Lakers later for Kobe. Um, and I was there, Raja. So the day, so you and Kobe get into that whole thing. Yep. I was working for the New York Times at the time. So I would just, I would just parachute into playoff series. And I happened to parachute into that Lakers Sun series in time for the press conference that Kobe had with us at their practice facility in El where he said, who's this kid? I don't know this kid, whatever. And I'm sitting in the back of my mind, like, dude, you were like wrestling with him for like, you know, how many, five games in the finals a couple of years ago. I, I, I clearly remember this. And I was, laugh- was in my head, I'm laughing. And I remember talking to like Mark Stein afterward or whatever, where we're, we're, we thought it was hilarious that Kobe's doing this whole, I don't know this guy, whatever. And it was, it was silly. That That's was funny.
0: actually in the midst of a very real, like it was really, it was very real for me, right? But you had to appreciate that, right? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, even, even I could sit back. <laughs> with my family at the time who all everyone was just gassed. It was on site. If we saw him in person, even we could sit back and say, that's pretty fucking funny, man.
1: (laughs) I I remember, I remember there was a TNT sizzle reel of like you guys at the, like it was, it was the day after it happened or a day after media for both of you guys, you and co and it was, you had some great quotes in there too. You guys a great to- closer there too, right? I tried. Like, you were like, you were like, Greg Willard just just fo- totally disrespected me or something, and like, or like, and you went back at Phil, like you were not scared as a guy that was like, you were like, fuck it, I don't care that Phil Jackson's over there talking shit, I don't care that Kobe's talking shit, I'm here.
0: You know what was funny about that? And I don't. I mean, maybe you're a, a genius, Logan. Maybe you just knew that this is where we were going. I didn't. Anticipate I didn't know. That, this. I thought he
1: was going to go to the, uh, the O
0: one Finals, but here we are. I didn't anticipate this but... What I haven't said ever on record about that moment in time with Kobe was how much Phil Jackson's mouth played into like the boiling point that I reached. He was great. Most coaches that I played against didn't have a lot to say to you. They coached the game. Now, obviously, they all get hot. They're competitors. They might yell something at a ref, and if you're in the way, like you, you catch the shrapnel from that or whatever, but Phil was talking to me. Mm-hmm. Like trying to get in my head, which he did. I mean, and, and, you know, so that, that was that particular night. I had Kobe and Kobe didn't talk a lot. So we weren't talking, but Phil was running his mouth. Mm. And then during Kobe the and I were doing the physical. Oh, yeah, during the game. Yeah. How messy was Phil Jackson
1: Howard? Like, how messy was he, like, to get it? Like, cause he was one of the few coaches that I've, that I've seen that actually would talk shit to the other team's players during the game. What what would what was what were the mind games he was trying to play with an opponent like that?
2: But he also talked shit on the off days. Like part of the fun of covering (laughs) Phil (laughs) and covering that era, coaches don't talk shit at all anymore. Hardly ever. It's kind of it's it's kind of unfortunate. It's so bad. Very. They're so diplomatic. They're they're all they're all like um, students of the game now. They all came from the damn film room, right? There's no Phil yeah. Jacksons or Jeff Van Gundy's yeah. Yeah. or or Pat Rise, whatever. Who are just gonna get out there and just like fucking talk shit and just yes. like and you know do all the, do all the referee politicking on the off days, take little shots at the opposing coach or the seventh man or something just to mix it up, like. That was fun. That was part of the fun of the era. Like I covered, like, oh, those Lakers King series. Uh, Phil like tweaking Rick Adelman. Um, like that was just part of his shtick. He and he had like two of the, the the coaches that I've covered that I really enjoyed covering and liked them as people and had, you know, a, a good rapport with them off the court, right? Phil Jackson and Mike Dantoni. Mm. Uh, obviously, Mike Uraja knows well. Yeah, those dudes hated each other, (laughs) and I liked both. I liked both these guys, and I covered Mike later than Phil. But so, like, when Mike, Mike fucking hated Phil, like they, and these are two guys that I feel like having covered each of them for long periods of time. That I also learned the most from as a reporter, and and when I talk about to the extent that I, as a non-player, have an aesthetic or a philosophy about how I think the game should be played or what I enjoy watching or the, um just the the way that teamwork works right the involving everybody whether it's Phil's triangle or Mike D'Antoni saying the ball finds energy these are things that I've kind of internalized so I've I've learned a lot and internalized a lot from both these guys but they could not be more different and those dudes <laughs> hated each other so that was always interesting that was
0: that was the era of of I mean I don't know what percentage of the coaches in the league at that point were former players but you're right. You're right. There's something while while the guy that comes out of the, the the film room and from a managerial side making his way towards coaching, like I think that's great and they do a great job and they're super bright and intelligent. And they've learned the shit out of the game and it's great. But you do lack, you miss the shit talking, the 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 needling side of it, just to being in the trenches, man. And that's what Phil Phil talked to you like he was playing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he
2: was there's, like there's he this- was suited up. It's it's the idea that during that era, and I think for most of the, the NBA's uh, uh, existence up until this modern era, the coach was a presence in and of himself. The coach was a presence. He had his own ego, his own, we wouldn't call it brand back then, but a persona. And his voice mattered. And he had he had some sway. And he had the ability to like get in there and, and mix it up just as the players would verbally. And the guys today... Like there is, it's a, it's a different, um, archetype of coach. It's a different mold. And, um, it's not to say it's, you know, bad or anything. It's not like, and it's not like they're all boring, but from a media standpoint, <laughs> there's, there is less of it that mixing it up. Right.
0: You know, you know who else would really, and, and it, but he was in his own different, it was in his own way. Not as many words as Phil, but certainly pointed words. And he was a figure like Jerry Sloan. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, when his big ass would be over there with them big old hands on that sideline, and he'd, you know, I didn't always play for the Jazz, so there'd be times, you know, you'd be like, shit, man, <laughs> that's a bear over there, man. You don't want to mess with, with Joe <laughs> <laughs> How much did how
1: wanna- Howard talk? Oh, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Howard.
2: No, no can I, let me, let me interrupt for just a second because I, before I forget this, Raja, what did Phil say to you? Because, like, I know what yeah. he would say on off days to us about, teams and players but like yeah, we were often sometimes we were sitting close enough but I I yeah I wouldn't necessarily be privy to what he was actually saying during the game do you remember anything he said yeah uh he would
0: tell me that night I don't remember verbatim but the gist of it was you you know if I'd be talking to the refs he'd interject and be like you fucking you deserved it like you deserved that you're you're you know he he would just be right on time it was it was you deserved it a lot um can you play him without fouling it's stuff like that man just he knew I was the underdog. Kobe was the marquee. I, I got a I got a complex about it to some degree, and he just worked that shit, man. At timely little jabs over and over, and the the accumulation of that <laughs> was. What enough. was a time
1: where did you? Jab, what was the time where you and Phil had like a verbal exchange, and where you like went back at him like "fuck you, Phil"?
0: Oh no, that night, that night when it went down with Kobe, I was I was all over the place. So I had told him to, to sit the fuck down, shut the fuck up. Like I had been. <laughs> I had been exchanging, but at that point, again, if I if you've gotten to that point as a player, he's already won. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I yeah. mean, once once I've said more to you than the other man, sit the fuck down. Like if I've come back and talk to you again, you know, you got me. So <laughs>
1: how how did how did uh because Howard just talked about how uh, the relationship with Mike D'Antoni and feel from your vantage point? How did Mike D'Antoni like take on those fields? I remember there was one time I think it was Christmas '06. I remember there was one time where. Where uh, Phil looked at, at Dan Tony and was like, What? You sit the fuck down and like went like yeah. this to him. I remember that. That got caught on television, Roger. So right. I don't, I can only imagine what it was like. I remember that. When, when Dan Tony goes up against Phil, what was that like from your vantage point in Phoenix?
0: Well, it, interestingly, like I was so wrapped up in it that I wasn't looking at it through that, through the coach's lens. So I don't, I don't really remember how Mike felt about, about, about Phil, like he never really spoke about it. I just know that as a team, and this started with Mike, we felt some kind of way about the way the Lakers and other teams felt about our style. Like we could, we were cool to watch, but it couldn't win anything, right? So, you know, we we felt pretty disrespected in that regard, and that was Mike's baby. So I know Mike wore that, you know, heavily, and then, you know, there was there was always a a, a chippiness there with the Lakers and and Phil and Mike what people don't know about Mike because he's really chill and his style is kind of laid back it's what endears him to a lot of people he is as fiery a coach as there is out there like Mike gets Mike could get after it and you know we we played like that that's why those those battles were those those series were just good cuz everybody hated each other for the most part
2: i thought Dan Tony and all the coaches that i've covered or even just observed over the last couple of decades all of them can get fired up at times, Raja. But like the gap between on-court persona and off-court, I think was bigger with Mike D'Antoni than anybody else I've ever seen. <laughs> Nicest guy in the world, all laid back. He's all Southern West Virginia drawl. Everybody's good, whatever we good, whatever. He's all friendly, like. And then he's like a freaking lunatic, yeah. During games with the refs and with what, like, and it's not that all coaches don't get wrapped up in the game and get really intense at times, but the the distance between. Off court, no, you know, game, no game going on. Mike D'Antoni and midst of game, and shit's not going well. Mike D'Antoni, like total Jekyll and Hyde, like to the extreme. That's I a just, great. Call.
1: That's a great call. I just call, feel though. like the Phoenix Suns of that era, from like oh four to like 09 was a big fuck around and find out energy, right? Like there was a, there was a sense that, cause you, we talked about this with Nash um, last week about how he's just, he's chill until you like set him off. Like he's like that. Raj is like that. Um, Steve Kerr is like that. Like all yes. of those guys were, were, you guys were like real chill and vibey. Uh who's the other guy? Uh, uh Alvin Gentry's also like that where he's a, where he's a totally different persona off the court than he is on the court. What yeah. is about that Phoenix Suns team where you guys are
0: just like, "Hey yo, y'all y'all think it's sweet, but fuck around and find out." You got a lot of dudes like that cuz you left out like pieces that you wouldn't necessarily think about like Boris too maybe. Bor- but n- Boris never really got into the fuck around and find out. Like he played and he was okay. fantastic, but that was never really his energy. But cats like Kurt Thomas, mm. Tim yeah, Thomas. Like, well, yeah, but Kurt. Kurt was there. Kurt was super chill, like good to kick it with. But he get in that mode on you quick. Um, Tim was like that. Um, we had Brian Grant my first year there. The Lion Brian, like <laughs> super chill. But boy, don't let that flip switch because it was it was on and pops. So we had a lot of people that were like that. But biggest biggest thing for us, I think, was just again so many people. And it, it I mean it played itself out that we didn't really win anything but we it was us against the world in, in that people really didn't think what we were doing was going to win it beat a lot of people but yeah it, it fell short ultimately
1: this episode is brought to you by arby's it's 3 p.m and dinner is still hours to come maybe lunch didn't quite hit the spot that's where the new two for five dollar chicken wraps from arby's come in available in ranch barbecue and honey mustard they're perfect for the afternoon snack attack or as an add-on to your meal. Arby's two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. Uh, let's transition a little bit to some current stuff. I do want to talk about um, the Utah Jazz right now, who are defying everyone's expectations. Uh, they're 8-3. and three. They beat the Clippers last night. Like, I don't but I I, I wanna talk about something bigger. But I think the Utah Jazz are face of this, of just kinda how you run a team based on the circumstances that you have, right? Like they, the, the Utah Jazz are in a position where they traded away their their, uh, their guys, Donovan Mitchell. Um, they get Laurie Marketing and some pieces back and they're expected to tank. You have a, you have a all-world player in France, Wimby, who is right there for the, you know, for the taking. And you have this culture of teams just, you know, we might tank, we might go get a guy, but they're doing quite the opposite. Roger, what have you seen from a team, from this team and how does that, what does that show us about how we should run a team during, you know, th- this era of basketball?
0: Um there are, there are a few things. Number one, I've always maintained that in the NBA, especially early in the NBA, if you can go out there and be committed to playing harder than your opponents for longer stretches of time, you're going to have a chance to be in ball games, provided you have some talent. Like, if you're just talentless, I mean, there's only so much you could do with that. But if you're just committed to playing hard, you know, having energy and, you know, sharing sharing the ball in a way that the ball does find the energy, yeah, you know, like Mike talks about, I think you're, you're going to put yourself in a nice position. Salt Lake City, and I, I talked about this a few pods ago, and the Jazz franchise, I was there during one of those years. I was there right after Karl Malone left, Stockton retired. We weren't supposed to do anything. And it just wasn't in the city, the town, the franchise's DNA to not be competitive. Like on paper, we weren't supposed to be anything. But it just, you, you kind of, teams take on the identity of of their coach and of their franchise and to some degree of that city. And so that's the way we went out and approached it. So I think they're kind of uniquely set up as a franchise and a town to be out there overachieving, right? And and doing things that, that you wouldn't think they do. And then from an X's and O's, like, you know how much I love offensive and defensive efficiency, Logan. You know, we jest, <laughs> yes. right? It's a joke, but I'll take it a step further. It's not just that they're top 10 in both of those. They they make, a, 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 I think they're second most in the league in terms of threes made per game. And they defend the shit out of a three-point line. Yeah. So if you put those things together, right? Like you're just, you're plus my you you're up you're winning you defend the shit out of it you give up like second least or third least in the league and you make the second most like you you're winning so there are a lot of things that go into it
1: uh Howard when you when you think about cuz I want to get a historical perspective from from you uh Howard when you talk about um just teams that you know have tried to tank you know the Celtics for Tim Duncan is a great example right or just any ta- or the Cleveland Cavaliers to get LeBron James um what is the best course of action historically when you do this? Is it we're gonna we're gonna tank and try to our best to get this generational talent because we're of a certain uh, we're in a, we're in a certain market, or we're gonna make the institution make us the best in the long term? What's the best long term play for teams? And historically speaking, how, how do how should teams go about this?
2: I think there is no should only because even you know there was a, a like a thirty year stretch or something where the team with the worst record got the top pick like two times or three times in 25, 30 years or something. There was, I can't remember what the exact stat was, but for the longest time, we had to remind everybody, we, the media, every time lottery was coming along and it's like, and remember, you know, aside from, you know, these three teams, nobody ever, you can't engineer it. You can't engineer it. So what the Sixers, the whole point of the process was not that there's some foolproof aspect of it, but that it is not foolproof. It was the opposite. What the Sixers did with the process was, we need as many bites of the apple as we can because, especially with the former lottery odds, you're, you can have the worst record, but you're probably going to end up with the second or third pick. And if it's a one-player draft, well, then, okay, I guess we need to be in the next year and the next year and the next year, too. So what they were doing was giving themselves as many bite, uh, bites of the apple as they could to get a franchise-changing player. And they actually got, in context, too. Now, Ben Simmons, we know what's happened with Ben Simmons, but Joel Embiid has been everything that you could want if you were deciding to do a teardown and a tank job. So to that extent, it worked. I will always say it, it worked. If the idea is to get franchise-defining players, they got two of them and could have had more if not for Markel Fultz. Um,
0: <laughs> Jason Tatum sitting right there. Never mind.
2: <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> mistakes were made. Um, so there's 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 that aspect of it. To, to actually do this quote-unquote right, as you ask Logan, you have to be committed for multiple years, and now with the the rejiggered lottery odds, where you only have instead of a twenty five percent chance of the team with the worst record, first, second, and third all have a like a fourteen percent chance. Well, you you can't guarantee yourself anything. So, and that's the whole point, right? That was the point of yeah. this was to try to discourage tanking. It still happens, but what the Jazz really remind me of, Logan, and this this goes to your question. If you're gonna do this, you better be all in because the 2013-14 Phoenix Suns were supposed to be a tanking team. I can't remember who they jettisoned the offseason, but they were getting rid of guys, and they were everything was about oh they're they're tanking this season. They won 48 games. Yeah, uh, I think Hornacek ends up winning Coach of the Year. Um, Isaiah
1: Thomas. Is, uh, that was Isaiah Thomas team with uh, with Derrick and they Goran Dragic. Was that was those were those the three guys that were the three three um, guards? I just on that pulled team, it up
2: actually. I think this might have been... They must have already gotten rid of Isaiah because he's not on this roster, but Dragic and Bledsoe both still are. But here's yeah. the roster that won 48 games and just missed the playoffs because you needed 49 to be the eighth yep. seed last that season, which is insane. Yep. But this is the roster. Dragic, very good player. Eric Bledsoe, pretty good player. P.J. Tucker, early in his... Not early in his career, but early in the P.J. Tucker is a... Oh, actually valuable player part of his career. Uh, Gerald Green, Channing Frye, Markeith Morris... Uh, Miles Plumley, Marcus Morris, Leandro Barbosa. So, like, if you looked at this roster at a glance, you'd be like, oh, yeah, I see what they were trying to do. But that team won 48 games. Why? Because of chemistry, something that we can't define, something that we can't plan for, something that we can't predict, but something that I'm sure Raja will attest matters a hell of a lot more than anybody wants to say, even in an analytics era when we can try to quantify everything. We can't quantify guys liking, enjoying, playing with each other, and and also, by the way, oh, uh, personal pride, players still want to win, coaches will still want to win. A franchise, an organization can want to tank. But coaches and players have their own ideas about like, well, shit, I got another contract to play for. I got personal pride and I got, you know, family back home who might be saying like, what are you guys doing? I'm not I'm not tanking. So that's what the Jazz are right now. And the, the, the we one week went by whatever that record was before I had a, a scout text to me immediately saying, you know, 2013, 14 Phoenix Suns. Like immediately, that was the thought, and that's what it's looking like. This is a team that a bunch of guys who had some potential. There's probably There may not be an All Star on this roster. No, probably is. Laurie's the Laurie's the only
1: closest thing you have on that as a all-star. and he's
2: not and he's not going to be right. Like I, no. and I don't know how far he takes this, but you have a bunch of guys who are pretty good. So to <laughs> the point of of I'll, I'll 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 stop rambling after this. How do you do this right? Make sure that you don't have too many players who actually are pretty good and are motivated to to, yeah. to do something like Sexton still has something to prove marketing has something to prove you got for, former lottery picks of recent lotteries who have something to prove and they're they're and they're trying they're trying too yeah. much for the good of the franchise
0: that's it like that's that's it in a nutshell, man like you can't have you can't have motivated players. you can't like you gotta you gotta find dudes that are like secure in their deals that are just notorious for laying vibes down in the middle on, on of their deals you, you do like or or like bad people you put a group of like good people that are motivated with a little bit of talent in the mix and that's i think you know how you talked about the uh the chemistry i use the word sharing typically teams that have good chemistry share the shit out of the ball and vice versa i don't know what comes first but they're they're synonymous, right? Like they work together. They share the shit out of the ball, and then they got good chemistry, or they got great chemistry, so they share the shit out of the ball. But you can win a lot of games. You can win a lot of NBA games. The amount of games that teams come out in the NBA, good teams asleep, just they're penciled in across the across the schedule. If you a team like that pops up on you, and you're a really good team, and, and you're chilling on the fifth night of a. Uh, of an eight game road trip, and you got in late, and j- you got a little jet lag, and now you see the Jazz with fresh legs. They're hungry. They're playing together. They're beating you to every loose ball. You're gonna mess around and get beat.
1: But I was I was just talking to a talking to a coach from a you know a team not expected to make the playoffs this season. And they were like, "Yo, man, we can win ten games just diving for loose balls." You know, like that's literally how we can we can win. We can just just out hustling other teams, and that's what you get when you have a a team like that, like the Jazz, who are so in sync and want to play for each other. That's that's all I was going to say. What we're going to say, Howard.
2: No, just that you you almost need somebody who um they're playing for something, but what they're really playing for is just themselves, right? Like you need like somebody should be. I don't mean to be besmirch the, the guy because he's a good player, but like, somebody should be whispering to Colin Sexton, like, you know, you, you probably should be taking 20 shots a game on a team like this, right? Like, there's no, no talent mm. here. Like, you know, you got You listen, man, you know, you're coming up on the end of that, you know, you need to get your next contract. Like, you almost need to like sow the seeds of selfish play and discord because that's how you're going to sync them, right? You're not going to sync them by just going out, by saying, hey, guys, just go out and do your thing. So it raises this question. If you're the Jazz right now and here you are sitting with like I don't know, the f- fourth best record in the NBA right now. Milwaukee, Cleveland, and Phoenix are the only teams with a better record than the Utah Jazz. You're 8-3, and three, and you know the front office did not intend for this. They can say that. None of us will believe them. Here's the question for the franchise. Are you better off with this fun, plucky, overachieving team, this really nice story, and look, it just shows how, you know, if guys just play hard and blah, blah, blah or do you want Victor freaking Wembanyama or maybe Scoot Henderson? Um, because that's what's going to happen. You you screw around and overachieve this season. It's a nice one year story, and your fans will be happy for the moment, and everybody can say, "See, you all were wrong about the tanking and this and that." Fine. Where are you a year from now? Two years from now? Three years from now? What's best? And that's what the front office and ownership has to think have to think about is what's best for us for the next five to ten years. And the answer to that is is. Blatantly obvious. And so it 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 leads to this. If this is all sustainable, and I'm not sure how much of it's sustainable, and I don't, you know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But if you think it might be, you have to start pulling the plug. Like you now. have to start, yeah. Like Larry Market has never been more valuable. <laughs> you yeah. should be trading him now. And he's basically like to the extent that they have a number one option and they don't, but he like he's your number one guy right now. Like to, to, to trade him now one you'll get something good for him to help the rebuild and two you can stave off this unfortunate overachieving <laughs>
0: jesus that's what a, what an incredible position to be in and you're you are absolutely right now because once you're 11 games in now once you get 25 games in and if you've sustained it through 25 it looks terrible so just go ahead, <laughs> just go ahead and start doing Tinkering
1: around the edges. You are when you pick up the phone and you're calling a team, what do you what are you asking them? I just need picks. Like what are you saying? What do you what do you want right now for Lori Marketing or Colin Sexton whoever to tear this shit down? What do you who, who what are you calling around? What is it? Like December? Whatever next month is when they can uh when they can actually feel trade off or something. that's another thing that's against them because the guys that they would want to trade have been traded to them but right. who what are you
0: what are you who are you calling what are you what are you saying roger what do, what do you need on a, on a on a trade i mean yeah i mean picks are great you could give me back i mean i don't know what that would look like Logan you could give me back some stuff if it's too good i don't want it um but yeah definitely definitely picks i take some. Some young pieces that uh aren't proven yet that I don't know are ready. Logan to hop Murdoch's in there and, right there at the end of the bench. I'll take him. Just yeah, get him. I I'll mean, get him on. I mean, at that point, if that's what you're doing, you're you're trying to secure, you know, the <laughs> you're trying to secure the lowest seed possible. So you're not gonna try to take back too much. I wouldn't be afraid of taking really young stuff though that uh hadn't proven anything that might might wind up pairing well with one of those high peaks.
1: Uh, what, what would you do? Who, who who are who are you letting go, uh, Howard? What who, who are you? See, would, GM Howard, what's what's going on?
2: The tough part of this, Logan, is they already have young players. It just so happens that those young players are playing pretty well. So, like, are you young girl, you're gonna trade for like thirteen year olds now? Like, I don't, <laughs> <laughs> you you want? If you're trading for picks, you actually almost are trading for like what fifteen year olds? Um, yes, you're. Picks are great. They already have a boatload from the two deals that they made for for Gobert and Donovan Mitchell. Um, we've seen with the Thunder, like, all right, there's a limit to how many picks you can stockpile and have it still be valuable. Because if you can't figure out a way to turn them around and, and repackage them in a somewhat timely manner, eventually you have to use them. Um, you're not going to keep them all. But yeah, probably that it, you don't because you don't want the talent coming back. The other route you could go because if the talent coming back is too good. You're still stuck in the same position, um, you know. Could you could you uh, trade him to the Knicks in the uh, so they can dump Julius Randle? Like I've I've you know certainly heard some some rumblings about you know the Knicks wanting to unload Randall. Uh, Randall, we've already seen has a track record of if he's not happy can can uh, submarine your team pretty quickly. So um, I don't know something <laughs> like that. But but you're going to want picks too, right? You're not doing it just for Randle. You're doing it for the Knicks. Have a surplus of picks. I don't know if the Knicks would value market it. I don't know if they want him. I'm just I'm just you know. Uh, spitballing here, but they have picks, right? So you're going to probably do it for either uh, a player in picks, a number of younger players. But the point is, you do need to make yourself worse and maximize the asset of, of Lowry marketing. Um, I don't know, I, like I haven't played with the Trade Machine on this one, but there's there's a deal there somewhere. I'd be I'd be more shocked if they didn't trade him than if they did.
1: What is, since we're in the Western Conference before we go to break, I do it's it's the Western Conference is a bit wonky. Clippers are an eight seed right now. We did not think that was going to happen. You know, Kawhi is hurt at this point. Um, if I were to tell you the if I if I ask you the Clippers, um, the Warriors, and uh, let's go with the. Um, Let's go with the uh, I'll go with the Mavericks instead of the sixth seed. Of of those teams, which one, if you had to go now, just take a guess. What's the team that misses the playoffs? I'll go with uh, I'll go with uh Raja first, and I'll go with Howard. Who what's the team that you think like has the greatest chance of missing the playoffs? Let's get messy really early Jesus, on.
0: That is messy, man. That's a no-win. I I mean, if you told me one of those teams was gonna have to miss the playoffs, I'd probably pick the Clippers. Um mm. I I just I mean, I the Golden State, I I think. They're too solid, they're too good, I think they figure it out, and it's a no win pick right Logan like i Dallas, I think I trust Luca and company more than I trust if Kawhi is gonna be available and what that looks like that I don't yeah. know. You've missed eight games now, um I don't know, I tend to think all of them are going to get in, but if you made me pick when I picked the clippers for no other reason than i then I trust golden State, the coaches the the health of their players, and Dallas. Like Luca more than I trust that Kawhi situation. Yeah, what do you think, Howard?
2: Um, I'm gonna try to answer this in a way where I can uh, inflame as many fan bases as possible. <laughs> Let's get it. <laughs> uh, well, because whoever you say is not making the playoffs, you are you're a hater toward that team. Correct. Correct. That's that's how this works. I will- <laughs> But that yes, that's gonna, what Logan does. That's yes, why he we go. No, no, that's why he
1: picked the Clippers because he didn't want to oh uh,
2: because Raja didn't
0: want to play with base. Do the Clippers
2: already hate you, Raja? Is that the thing? Like, I, I, got had, beef. I
0: haven't had a beef with Clipper Nation. I guess I do now. Thanks, Logan.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so it, if you'd asked me the question before the season started, and you said I have seen the future, one of these three teams, Clippers, Warriors, Mavs, does not make the playoffs, I would have picked the Mavericks. Yeah. Because the Warriors are the defending champs and the Clippers had a presumably healthy, presumably doing a lot of work these days, uh, <laughs> Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. And I would have thought, and look, we were all talking about the Clippers as, as title contenders or even title favorites. So, and the Mavericks having lost Brunson, having not really replaced him, having been so dependent on Luka, one wrong ankle turn and you're, you're toast, right? So that would have been the answer then. But today, I mean, there are days where it looks like the Warriors just might be broken, and I don't think it, I don't I don't believe that the Warriors, as long as Steph Curry is there and and still playing the way he is, the Warriors will be. I, I still believe they'll be fine. I, I'm not writing off the Warriors at three and seven, um, and the Mavericks. Yeah, like you know. Luka is a freaking MVP candidate, but the Clippers, despite all their depth, despite all their talent, despite that was was supposed to be a phenomenal dynamic duo that has not ever been able to stay healthy long enough to do it. Like, it when Kawhi Leonard's missed this many games this early in the season with the usual freaking shroud of mystery and and what the hell's going on? Like, how many times? Like, this is the story of Kawhi Leonard's career. He's either a Finals MVP or or there's some weird shit happening with regard to his health that we'll never actually understand the full scope of because there's so much uh, misdirection or lack of information, just this shroud of mystery around it. And this is where we are again and where the Clippers are. We have no idea what's going on. And that makes me worry, especially considering that the guy had a full year and a half to get back and was supposedly 100% healthy on day one. Load management or no load management, this is this is not that. This is something else strange and um they're a lesser th- less than the sum of their parts team right now.
1: It it's interesting because I mean, uh Howard, you were in Vegas in 2019 when the Kawhi news dropped, right? When the Kawhi no. when it was were you were you I, weren't in Vegas?
2: I, I I was I was in a uh a residence in in somewhere in the middle of Connecticut for random reasons having to do with dropping my daughter off at, off at
1: camp. That's a better reason. <laughs> it's fine. You weren't in, it's fine. You weren't, but in Vegas in in, in 2019, we all thought it was when uh, when Kawhi chose the Clippers, and then that massive trade happened to get Paul George um, into LA. At that point, Paul George and Ka- Kawhi were on the Clippers, and that was also when Anthony J- Davis joined the uh, the Lakers. We all thought this was going to be a new era of Los Angeles basketball. It has not happened. I mean, we can you know you can make the argument: oh, the Lakers won a title, yes, but it was during a global pandemic, and you know it's it's.
2: Are you asterisking all, the championship logo? I'm not Uh-oh. asterisking
1: it. I'm not asterisking it. What I'm doing is, is all I think is I'll, i LA, in my opinion, doesn't have the same connection with the 2020 Lakers as they would otherwise. It's because they didn't see them. Not that it has anything to do with yeah. how the the that's how, nice. how it went happen. Because they didn't see it see it happen, but um in person. But how my question is, and I guess I'll start with, with Raja. How are we gonna look back on this 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 run for both teams of, of Lakers and Clippers over these last few years, right? Because the Kawhi thing didn't happen for the Clippers, and now we, all, we
0: just talked about what's going on in Los Angeles. Well, how do we think we look back on this? I think it's going to, when looking back, be a miss for both franchises. I think they, they would have missed. They would say they had a window, a clear window with talent um, that should have delivered you know whatever x y and z would be for per franchise the lakers obviously would have expected more i think just as a franchise and the clippers did but i think both when you look back are going to be saying they missed they missed an opportunity and i and the only reason i say that for the lakers cuz i know they won 1 because with those two talents you know adn prime and and lebron towards the end of it like you would have expected more than one i think um everyone's happy to get one but i think as a laker franchise you would have expected more than one and I don't see either one of them getting one. I mean, the, the Clippers has just been a mess. And I have no faith in Kawhi when he comes back. I love Kawhi, but I don't think that you take that much time off. You continue to age with knees and so on and so forth. And then you become a better player than you were the last time I saw you or you're even at that level. So I I just I think you'll look back and say they, they miss an opportunity in two windows.
1: How will Kawhi be looked
2: at down the line? howard listen i mean his place is secure i mean he made the the 75 list right so he's you know we know he's gonna be in the hall of fame we know he's top 75 all time he's a two-time finals mvp with two different teams and one of the great two-way players we've ever seen just fantastic talent but yeah some guys have butts tacked to their careers and listen I want to just make this quick caveat first because has kind of already bes- decided to just write them off entirely. There's, no <laughs> scenario. There's still a scenario here. There's still a scenario. Con- in, it, it is within the realm of possibility that Kawhi gets healthy, plays a majority of the games still on the schedule, and the, the Clippers still make a deep playoff run next spring. It's not over yet, right? It's weird right now. It's concerning, but... They're not done yet. It's not toast. So the 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 postscript on Kawhi's career, uh, you know, it's it's a few years off still. I think um, that's fair, right? So now, if maybe the Clippers make a run, let's say they let's say they get to the finals and lose, right? And some people will have that high bar of like, oh, if you go out and get a Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, anything less than a championship is a fail. We know that's bullshit. If they even get to the finals, the freaking L.A. Clippers, who were a joke for most of our lifetimes, and The totality of your career, Raja, I don't think that team ever was was considered respectable. It wasn't a place that you or anybody else wanted to go. It was a place that guys actually avoided going. And if they got there, they were immediately trying to figure out how to get out. And the Clippers were respectable enough, respected enough, that suddenly two of the elite players in the game, whatever may have have happened since then, health-wise and everything else, those two guys chose the Clippers together. That could not have happened in our lifetimes, and if you over would say the that it could happen over the Lakers, we would have thought you were freaking crazy if you ever thought that that could happen. So I say, and I've already been mocked for saying this by my colleagues at SI on our podcasts because I did say this uh, before the season. The Clippers have already won. They won in 2019 by getting those guys and forever changing. Now you could say Chris Paul and Blake Griffin and that group, the Lob City group, changed the image. Yeah, that that there's that's fair too. But even in that, Chris Paul got traded there. Wanted to be with the Lakers. Blake Griffin got drafted there. No, they nobody was choosing them. The, for the first time in the Clippers' history, two All NBA caliber players, including a two-time Finals MVP, chose the freaking Clippers. That to me is a turning point for the franchise. And no matter what happens in this era, we won't see them the same way, qu- uh, quite the same way again. So it's not to let them off the hook if they don't win. Like, of course, your your aspirations are higher when you get them, but if health and everything else gets in the way i'll still look at this as as a defining moment in a, in a positive way that that changed the way we look at the clippers and that how uh, the way that players and future stars will look at them and might see them as a destination whereas they wouldn't have in the past that means you can try to replicate this if this version fails
0: that's that's an interesting that's an interesting thought process on that and i got to i got to digest it but i kind of like it and i would i will say um what I'm talking about looking back on them and thinking that's a missed opportunity that would be if, 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 uh, if they were to make the finals uh, in, in the next year or so, I do agree with you. I don't think you necessarily have to win it. I think you have to be viable and playing at a high level and be taking a swing at it, you know, for multiple years for that fan base to be like, you know, we maximize the talent. Like you'd like to get a win in there. I just, there's, I don't, it because of the history of the injuries and stuff, I don't, I don't trust it, and there, yes, it is early. And I actually hope because T. Lou my guy, um, and I like Kawhi. But so I agree with you. Like they wouldn't necessarily have to win it for it to be a success. And it's an interesting thought about them having already succeeded with kind of changing the the, the narrative around it. Um, I don't know. I just why worry about them, man. My guy, my guy Trent Redden's out there too. So I pull for him. But that's when you're missing games, you've missed eight games already, eleven games in, and that's that's ugly. That's not. I mean, I hope he's okay, but that's weird.
1: Not great. Let's, Let's take a quick break. I want to talk about Giannis. This episode is supported by State Farm. Man, I remember when I first got into a car accident, it was pure frustration because I did not have State Farm. And now that I do have State Farm, it is an exclamation of pure joy.
2: just for listening to us talk about basketball. Not bad, right? You don't need more than one line of wireless to save. Just switch to Visible at Visible.com and use promo code RINGER20 for data management practices and additional terms. Visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month.
1: And we are back. The Bucks are um, off to their best start in franchise history. And, you know... We all know Giannis is great, but he's doing it, doing this. He's averaging, I think, 32 and 12 and five. He's just bonkers. I want to go look at that in regards, in, in comparison to his, 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 uh, his previous season. This is one of his best seasons. Um, what, where, I, I, when, I, when I think about Giannis' seasons, and it's only, what, nine games in, I'm thinking about this. This seems like the start of, you know, every guy has a season. Right. Every guy that you know has a season. You think about um Jordan's what 87, 88 year, right? Or you think about, you know, LeBron in 2011, 2012, Curry 2015, 16, Beck knows Shaq 99, 2000. I think we're starting to see that. What have you liked from uh from Giannis? I'll start with Roger. What have you liked from Giannis this season and and what is what is different about him this season? Because he's playing without um without Middleton. Their one of their biggest acquisitions over the summer, uh, Joe Ingles. But he's it, it, they the Bucks just seem like they haven't missed a beat because he's been so great. What have you seen from him?
0: I mean, I Giannis has been Giannis to me, man. Giannis is the most dominant basketball player on the planet. Um, you know, he when he he's a bucket any way he wants it, I've used that before, right? Like, he's gonna get a bucket. And I like, you know, if I'm I, it, I like the leadership, I like the stability, I like. I like his demeanor for a team like Milwaukee. I like the the mentality. It just looks like business. Do you know what I mean? And look when he's yeah. out there, he looks like he's not concerned with the with the social media presence and this and that. Like he looks like a dude who's out there for 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 business, for for next. And so that's what I like about Giannis. His game, I mean, he continues to add to his game for sure. Like there's things that he's doing this year. I mean, you know, I tuned in and seen him on a pull up, and he'll continue to to get marginally better in some of those areas. But I like I like his demeanor and the way he goes about his business. And what I like about Milwaukee, I talked about their length and their size, their versatility defensively. You know, they went from one of the worst teams in the league last year at three pointers allowed. They were basically walling up and just daring you to shoot threes. And then it, you know, it bit them in their ass a bit in in the you know, in the in the Boston series and and you're giving up too many threes. And this year they're top five in the league in terms of opponents' threes made per game against them. Like they're out there now because they have the length to do both. And so they're out there and they're taking it away and they're defending and they make it difficult and they're challenging you for everything. And Giannis is just a he's just a dude, man. He's his mentality is I mean it's Kobe-esque. It's MJ-esque. Like he's a he's a mean dude out there. Do you know he's yeah. out for, for bodies?
1: Yeah. What what have you seen from Giannis this season, Howard, that's probably different than any guy you've covered or any any player that you've seen during your time?
2: I'll say this much. Um, a couple of different things. some of this is personality related and some of it's um play related. Um the personality part, because Raja kind of touched on this. Think about all the other really high usage guys of this era, right? Because we have a lot of these guys around the league now. Where it's just, just keep giving it to your guy. Keep giving it to mm-hmm. James Harden in his Houston years. Keep giving it to Russ in his Oklahoma years. Keep giving it to Luca now. Keep giving it to Giannis. And Giannis is he's he's like a just a tad below like his career high usage rate right now. Like he's he's up in the stratosphere in terms of usage. And I don't. I generally think that the high usage just goes back to the, our discussion earlier, Raja, about like. Mike D'Antoni, the ball finds energy. Phil Jackson, triangle offense, egalitarian stuff, right? You want everybody to feel involved and everybody to feel good and everybody to be in a rhythm. I, I'm always a little alarmed or concerned for a team that is too all-in on one guy doing absolutely everything. He's either scoring or he's passing to the guy who scores. I think there are limits to that in the playoffs. But one, Giannis makes my contention look stupid because <laughs> <laughs> he's just that freaking good with it. Um. And two, if you think like all those guys I just named, if I asked you who you would ra- most want to play with, probably honest, yeah. right? Yeah, Rogers nodding his head. Like yep. Rogers, he, like I'm gonna be in the corner right here. Yeah. Just give the ball when you need me to. <laughs> just get when you need me, I'm right here. Just get. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like he's just he's such a he's so uh, good-hearted. He's so humble. He's so like and and yes, there is that other thing on the court. He's a killer but he's never trying to rub your face in it. He's not, he doesn't do that. Like maybe because he grew up in Greece instead of in the U S he doesn't have that need to be the most macho guy out there all the time. Like I love Kobe, like, and, and all the years I covered Kobe through all the ups and downs, everything else, I appreciated the way he was built mentally to, to do what he did and the way he felt he had to carry himself sometimes to an extreme to be that guy. And then Toward you know, uh, the end of his career when people were like, wait, Kobe seems really nice. He was never nice before. He's just trying to spin us all. I was like, No, no, no. That's the guy I always saw all the other times. And Logan and I, I think have talked about this before. But that's but he Kobe had to, to, to fashion this other personality on the court to be that guy at all times. That's how it worked for him. Giannis doesn't really have to do that to an extreme. And it doesn't mean he doesn't, he doesn't play aggressively, that he doesn't want to rip your heart out and all that other stuff. He just doesn't have to say it. He's not gonna get could you imagine Giannis getting up on the podium and be like, yeah, man, I'm gonna rip your heart out. This is what I do. This is but like it would sound ridiculous coming from him. This is the guy who's like, I love smoothies. Um, yeah. yeah, telling dad you know, jokes. Like, yeah, dad jokes. <laughs> yeah. He, and like me, he watches so the Kardashians
1: every week, which is I love it. I'm I'm yeah. here for it.
2: <laughs> did you guys see, did you guys see the the, the video uh, made the rounds, I think, yesterday over the weekend. Uh, Giannis is walking off the court after practice or shoot around, I think with um, I think with Sergi Baca, and Giannis is yeah joking about like you know, I'm good looking. I'm athletic. I'm this and that. Like, okay, so I can't shoot three. You know, I, I, he was basically saying like, if I could shoot threes, I'd be insufferable. I got something's got to keep me humble.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: And yeah. and and it was really funny because the way he said it too, even the way he said it was self-effacing. He wasn't really trying. To, he's got that that funny goofy grin on his face. Shaq said the exact same thing once upon a time about free throws. Basically, like I'm the most dominant ever, and. If uh you know if I could shoot free throws too I'd basically be I'd be insufferable. And and so it was reminding me of that like some guys are so freaking good and so unstoppable that it almost is to the point where yeah there there, there got to be one little flaw in the game a snag for us to talk about. But yeah. even then, Giannis is not afraid to shoot the 3. Giannis is not afraid to shoot jumpers in general. Giannis is not he's not afraid of failure. Um like I just I just appreciate the way he carries himself out there because there's a confidence without too much cockiness. There is a an ability to extend himself and try things that maybe are a little out of his reach without worrying about if he misses. Um, he just seems like a great dude to play with and be around.
0: He is, and he's still at he's still at the point in the because it he's still at the point in his career where he's like not taking the amount of plays off that become obvious to other people on the court. If that makes sense, so like, once that once these stars age defensively you know that they have to take some plays off. Do you know what I mean? Giannis is still out there as your as your A-man, like the block he had in the finals two years ago type of shit, right? Where like he is just going to will his way to a defensive stop. And I, when you're playing with a guy like that who's your best player and you see them out there taking the challenge, especially defensively, when you know how much they mean to you offensively, that's another level of respect that you have for them too. That's another level of – because that – you know, in a locker room, like there's a, there's a hierarchy, and we all know. Hey, man, like we're here to help. You know, with the offensive load, like I'm here to support you. You're going to be the marquee. This is this is what you do, and I'll be in the corner waiting. We're gonna we're gonna play off of you, so on and so forth. But on the defensive end, um, that's where dudes kind of look around and they're like, okay, shit, yeah, all right, you're in here banging too. I can appreciate that because not everyone will do that. You know, not every offensive star is going to do that with you. And so I'm not saying you lose respect for them, but there's a level of respect gained when your star's out there on that side of the ball doing it too.
2: A lot of the guys that we were just talking about a minute ago when I was saying of all the high usage guys, like how many of those guys I named actually play defense at the level or even try. I, granted, Giannis is built, you know, yeah. differently physically, but it's also that he cares about that side of the game, right? Yeah, like dude. the guy, you know. That's he, how you show in-
0: you care about me. You know what I mean? Like as a yeah. teammate, you, that's how you show. Yeah, you we we
1: you referenced Shaq Howard. And I feel like we're about to have the conversation that we usually have, when we're in the same city. Where I just ask you hella questions about the Lakers dynasty, and you just you just you just roll with it. Um, but by,
2: by the but, way, great book out right now called "The Greatest Show on Earth" from Sports Illustrated and Triumph Books, uh, documenting the entire uh, history of the uh, Lakers dynasty. Uh, go to Triumph Books, uh, enter code Lakers thirty for a thirty percent discount. Thank you, Logan. All right, there you
1: go. All <laughs> right, well then here we go. But my question is, what are let's compare and contrast uh, Giannis and Shaq for a bit, right? Like. Well, you covered Shaq, and you, I referenced the ninety, the ninety-nine two thousand season. That was his MVP season, as as like yeah. Shaq's magnum opus of a of a regular season going into a Finals championship. That is Shaq's, in my opinion, absolute peak. What is, what do you see from that peak Shaq to what we're seeing now with Giannis, and as he's ascending still into
2: his peak, it seems like. Ooh. That's an interesting question. Um. Wow. It, they're hard to compare just because of context, right? Like, Shaq is doing this at a time that they're also navigating all of the Shaq and Kobe in, in, intra-team rivalry stuff. Um, Shaq came into the NBA with these ridiculous expectations. Like, I'll never forget because it was before I covered the NBA. I was just a fan in the mid-90s and, you know... Um, Covering small town uh city hall uh, for a small town paper in Northern California when Shaq ends up coming to the NBA and has commercials. I remember feeling like this guy's got commercials and he hasn't even played a day yet like really because that didn't happen back then, right? So Shaq came in with these incredible expectations and goes to Orlando and gets him to the finals within four years and is well in his way. So when he gets to the Lakers and he's got the, the, having to deal with just the ignominy of of being swept in the finals and trying to rebuild a thing with Kobe that he previously had with Penny and all this, there was always a chip on Shaq's shoulder and there was always this thing that literally anything less than a championship was a failure. And it was, he carried a, a lot different burden, I think, and he's just a different guy. So like with Giannis, right, 15th pick in the draft, Nobody saw this coming. Giannis has just like grown b- before our eyes. Um, he's already got a championship. He's, you know, already got two MVPs. He like all the pressure in a way, I don't want to say the pressure is off of him. It's always on you when you're one of the all-time greats. But partially because of the way he's wired and partially because of just his career arc, I feel like everything's gravy for Giannis. You know, Giannis could retire tomorrow. He's going to the Hall of Fame. Giannis can retire tomorrow and he's a top 75 player. Giannis is like nothing we've ever seen before. Shaq was like nothing we'd ever seen before, but he was at least a version of it, right? Like Shaq was at least a different, a, a, a bigger, stronger version of Wilt or somebody, right? The, there is no comp for Giannis. And um, so it that, that plays into it a little bit for me. Um, the other thing is, apologies Shaq, Shaq didn't win another MVP after that season that you're referring to, the 99-2000 season, Logan, partially because of injury. Part of that is because of the way he did or did not take care of himself at times. Um, part of it is that Shaq would come into a season trying to play his way into shape. When we used to talk about the Lakers flipping the switch, it was really about Shaq flipping the switch. It was about <laughs> him getting to a point where he could be that guy again. And yeah, there were years there where he thought he should have won MVP again, but it went to Duncan or somebody else in part because... I remember having this argument with Shaq once or just discussion with Shaq, but like we're holding you to a standard that that may be unfair because the standard is you. And if you can't still flirt with or, or um, approximate what you were doing in 99-2000 when your blocks dropped from like three and a half a game to 1.8 or whatever it was, if your rebounds are dropping from like 14 to 11 and a half, like by anybody else's standards, you're still the most dominant player in the game as you would always say, and you're still amazing and you're still unguardable one-on-one, all this, but it's not... The standard that we saw when you won MVP. And so with Giannis, he still has room to grow. And I think obviously, you know, Giannis takes really good care of himself. We're also just in a different era of the NBA where like guys don't, don't like let it go in the off season, then come to camp and get in shape during October. They're playing year round. Everybody's got like freaking chefs and nutritionists and all that. Yeah. They, they, there's just a whole different year round very attuned to your body and your diet and all this that didn't was not the the norm in the early two thousands.
0: Yeah, I you- don't. I mean, I think that I don't. I don't have much more to add to that. I've always said it would have been really interesting. There are a lot of guys across the history um, of the NBA would have been interesting to see them train and and play in an era. shack is one of those guys. If he had not tried to be a bigger more physical, wilt or something like that, and had trained to play kind of like Giannis has trained to play. Do you know? Do you understand what I'm saying? Because when he came in, he was thin and he was athletic and he was he was moving, and then he just turned in because there were so many seven footers and the game was so punitive physically. Like he turned into this big, hulking type of figure. It would have been cool to see him in a Giannis role, molded like Giannis has been molded, because he could have been crazy too, and not, not, not that he Roger, wasn't. Here's but, a, yeah.
2: yeah. yeah. No, here's a here's here's a here's a fun thing for uh you know younger fans who maybe didn't see especially the Orlando years of Shaq. Go go find Orlando Shaq and LSU yeah. Shaq on, yeah. on YouTube because he's not this big, hulking dude. He's still bigger than any average human being by a long shot, but he was there was he was a little more uh sculpted and athletic and and spry. And he still retained a lot of that even as he added all that muscle over the years. But Shaq had to because the NBA at that time was the guy in the post gets the shit beat out of him and Shaq more than any of them. So yep. he had to take a lot, he had to dish out a lot, and he did what he thought he needed to do for that era. But if Shaq came in in this era, a pace and space era, oh. and a get out and run era, he, dude, the guy that you saw in those YouTube videos of his Orlando years, if you think, if that had been his career, and especially, if, you know, transpose that Shaq to this time in the NBA, man, correct, he'd be, he'd be, he'd be, he'd be crushing dudes.
1: In the opening night, I saw Shaq go up to Draymond Green and give him a hug, and it told me everything I needed to know about how Shaq would be in this era. It just told me everything. Just like like Draymond disappeared in that hug. But, Roger, well, you
0: were a teammate of Shaq, so what was it like playing against him and then playing with him? Um, playing against Shaq, I remember – in those 01 finals, Larry Brown, you know, telling me, like, if Shaq gets it here, wherever it was, we're gonna we're gonna send you down. We want you to double him. And if you have to foul him, just foul him. And so <laughs> I was no, I ran down there, you know, and I had never really played against Shaq. I'd only been there for like a month. So I ran yeah. down there and I think I put two hands on his forearm and I shit you not. He lifted me off the floor as he went up. Like I was like, oh shit. You know, like, oh my God, I'm in the air. <laughs> You know, it was, he was
2: just,
0: (laughs) um, he was so big and so hard to, you know, plus at the time, you know, Shaq had, you know, you were taught as a big to have those chicken wings out and Mm -hmm. they were right at eye level. Anytime you went in there to dive at him. So he was literally scary, you know, because you felt like, uh, okay, here's a story when he was a teammate and this is how scary messing with Shaq was. I am baseline, um, low man, I think, or no, he's low man, weak side. I don't know. He's there. Someone's going to the basket, and I'm, I'm on their hip trying to control them. They're going to beat me to the basket, so all I can do now is jump and try to contest the layup. And unbeknownst to me, Shaq's coming from the, from the backside. And so I'm in the air, just about to reach at the ball, and then the lights went out. Is there a practice? Miss, no, no, no. This is in a game. And so okay. I wake up, and I look up, and Shaq's standing over me. I, he had clipped me with his elbow. Oh, I was shit. out. I was out. Okay. But, you know— that's how scary he could be, right? Like, it wasn't like he fouled the hell out of me. He just was coming to help me on a shot. And He was being a good teammate. With, being a good teammate, man. Knocked me out cold. I was out. Um, so he was he was scary to play against. As a teammate, I mean, you know, Shaq came to Phoenix like bearing gifts, literally. You know, he was just a great dude, man. He was he was, he was like, I'm going to help all of you guys be better, especially these shooters. He was there to protect Amari. He said, hey, I'm going to help you. You know, there's this X, Y, and Z I can do for you. I'm like big bro. And then to me and the other shooters, he said, I'm just going to make your job that much easier. Just, you know, get in my vision. You know, when this happens, I need you to do this. He was like, and I'm just going to put it on you. And so, you know, he was a great teammate to be around. What gets lost about Shaq, because I, and it probably does about a lot of gets lost, you know, about a lot of bigs is how bright they are and how well they see the game. Like we always accredit that to Steve Nash's and the Jason Kids and these great point guards, uh, Mark Jackson and those guys. But Shaq was brilliant. He knew the game inside and out, man. He knew exactly just like a point guard, but playing it from a seven foot, three hundred and some pound, you know, position and just and just dropping you off like that. So I really enjoyed Shaq. Before we get out of here, Howard, what's your best Shaq story? You knew <laughs> how I was gonna do it.
2: Uh, I mean there are, there are plenty. There are lots. <laughs> the best one you could
1: say on this podcast.
2: I've told you about like the various times that Shaq got physical with the media, right? I don't mean this in any kind of untoward way. I just mean like when Shaq wanted to get playful or he's like kind of messing with us. I think I've probably told you these. I, I've, I've, anyway, I'll, I'll just give you two. So, <laughs> Tim Kawakami is covering the Lakers for the LA Times at this point in time. This is early 2000s.
1: Shout out Tim Kawakami, friend of the show.
2: And Kawakami has a knack, bit of a knack on the beat for kind of getting, you know, does he getting under guys' skin a little bit, especially does Shaq? He? Yeah, you know, <laughs> Tim Tim can be a little aggressive. I learned a lot. I learned a lot covering the beat with Tim. Actually, same. So we and we and we, we both. I like there were times where we're kind of double teaming a guy and like they're getting a little annoyed because we're both, you know, we were pretty aggressive as reporters. But Tim had was on a streak of getting under Shaq's skin through I don't know how many days, how many games, how many practices. And Shaq was be like, ask a good fucking question. Ask a good question. And that was his thing. He kept hitting Tim back with it. He didn't like the question. Ask a good question. And one day we're sitting there, it was a, a staple center home locker room. And Tim asked some question. Can't remember what it was. Don't remember the context, but Tim asked a question. And Shaq would always he would always be sitting down hunched over, kind of looking down, not looking at us for a lot of these interviews. And all of a sudden he looks up and his eyes get wide and he looks up and he goes, Kawakami asked a good question. Kawakami asked a good question. And he leaps up. He grabs Kawakami and he starts pogo sticking him around the locker room. You talk about...
1: (laughs) Hey, I don't know if you know Kawakami. Uh, Raj, I don't know if you know Tim Kawakami. He's a a, a legend. He's a legend in the Bay and he was a legend in, in LA Times. But this guy is like, he is by the book and he's not fucking around. Like he makes... Like, this is a guy that makes, like, owners quiver when he asks a question, right? So, right. like, like very serious about his job. Yeah. And now so, he's in
0: a bear hug getting pogoed up and down.
2: Yeah. Uh, Tim will ask anybody anything. Totally fearless. What I always admired Fucking about fearless. him remains so to this day. But when you say that Draymond disappeared in Shaq's bear hug, I mean, Kawakami, not, you know, not just him, me, anybody. We are all, like, half the size of Draymond, even. So, imagine how quickly Tim... <laughs> just was engulfed, disappeared. And Shaq's pogo sticking him around the room. Tim is just hanging on for dear life as Shaq's going, <laughs> come, come, ask you a question. And, he's, and there's bouncing as he says this with Tim wrapped up in there. It was phenomenal. My version of that, so I I, I was not quite as harrowing, but a couple of years after that, we're in Dallas for a shoot around. I don't even remember what I asked that day, but it was the opposite. Whatever I asked or whatever line of question I was going on was annoying him so much. And again, he was not, trying to hurt me and did not hurt me. But Shaq just at some point was annoyed enough. He just leaned over, grabbed me, and threw me over his shoulder like a sack of potatoes. And suddenly (laughs) I'm looking down his backside with my recorder in one hand and my notepad and pen in the other hand, hanging on for dear life, just trying not to drop anything and not die. Uh, And then at some point he put me down and everything was fine. But yeah. That's oh shy. shit
1: well there yeah. you go man <laughs> fucking Howard Beck
2: <laughs> thanks so much for coming on bro Howard
1: motherfucking Beck finally came on the Real Ones with Raja on because Raja we, we finally got you on with Howard yeah Raja. I was it's glad to great. have been here Raja Max, was dodging me I know me. Yeah. yeah Raja was dodging that's what it. yeah 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 Raja don't fuck with the media it's all good um, yeah, that has know. been another edition no, good. <laughs> good,
2: good being with you guys thank you
1: Thanks so much, man. That's been another edition of Monday Real Ones. Uh, Howard, come on anytime. You have an open invitation. This was great. You could catch us Mondays and Wednesdays on the Ringer NBA feed, man. We will see you guys on Thursday. Talk soon. Holla.